0: Please turn in your Bibles back to Mark chapter 7. As we were singing this morning, filling the room with praise to Christ, it's a taste of what that will be like in glory. Revelation 19 says that the voices of the redeemed are like the sounds of many waters as we give praise and hallelujah to Christ, our Redeemer. What a day to anticipate. As you're turning there, just a a brief uh, comment today. Obviously, Pastor Don is not with us uh, this morning, and uh, he misses being here, and we miss him too. But uh, from time to time, he receives invitations to speak at local churches in different parts of the country, as well as internationally, And as elders, we see some of these opportunities as an important extension of the ministry of our local church. I don't think uh, anyone would disagree that the Lord has blessed us with an exceptional pastor and teacher who is a blessing to us. And it is a blessing then for us as a local church to allow his ministry to be extended to other local bodies on occasion. So this weekend, Pastor Don has been teaching his series, Trusting God in Trying Times, to a small congregation in Utah. And I know that he would appreciate your prayers today as he finishes that series with them and then uh, returns home. And we'll look forward to having him back here on Tuesday, Lord willing. Well, we're in Mark chapter 7. Our text for this morning, again, is verses 24 through 30. And just to set the context for us this morning, at the beginning of this gospel, Mark established that Christ is worthy of worship. He says, this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that term, Son of God, is a term that describes the equality that Christ has with God. Christ is of the same essence of God. Christ is deity. And it would also resonate with the original audience that Mark wrote his gospel to, the largely Gentile and Roman audience, who used that title, Son of God, to refer to Caesar, the roman ruler it was a title of honor a title that distinguished caesar as the ruler of the empire and essentially mark is saying there is a ruler of the roman empire but there is a ruler of the ruler of the roman empire and every other empire and every other nation and every other king and every other authority the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. In Psalm 2, we're told that one day all the rulers who scoff at Christ, who scoff at the rule of God, will come under the rule of Christ. And so the invitation at the end of Psalm 2 is to kiss the Son and to find refuge in Him before that day of reckoning takes place. And so as the Gospels unfold the life of Christ and the ministry of Christ and what He accomplished, we are confronted with the reality of God's steadfast love and fulfilling His promises all all through the Old Testament and the coming of Christ, and that Christ is indeed worthy of worship. And what does a believing response to Christ look like? Well, a believing response to Christ acknowledges that he is king. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Why? Because the king has come. And as Jesus went about preaching the gospel, again in Mark chapter 1 and verses 14 and 15, Mark summarizes Jesus' ministry that he came proclaiming the kingdom of God, preaching the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. So what do I do? Repent repent and believe the gospel a believing response to christ is a response that acknowledges christ is king that i've sinned against god i've sinned against christ and i have nothing That I can offer the only way to enter the kingdom of heaven to enter the kingdom of God is to acknowledge Christ to acknowledge his work to acknowledge the perfection of his character and the redemption that he has secured on the cross and to turn to him in repentance of sin to turn away from sin to Christ and believe the good news that those in Christ are given eternal life by the grace of God and by the grace of God alone shown forth in Christ Jesus. And you say, well, I, I'm a terrible sinner. How could God accept me? How could Christ accept me? Well, if that is your response, you're in the right place spiritually. Spiritually. Because Jesus, as he was dealing with the Pharisees in chapter 2, who were critical of him eating with tax collectors and sinners, Jesus said, I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. He came to call you to himself, to repent and believe the gospel. And the section that we are in, Here that really begins back at the beginning of chapter 7. The self-righteous have rejected Christ. The Pharisees who are caught up in their ceremonial cleansing, they're trying to get rid of the filth, they're trying to Obey God, but in a self-righteous way, in a manner that that depends on what they do, on a manner that depends on their works, on what they offer, on what they look like on the outside. And as a result of their hardened unbelief and self-righteousness, they have rejected Christ. They have rejected Scripture They see defilement as that which external ceremony can cleanse. And Jesus tells them that in their unbelief, they have rejected him. In their unbelief, they have rejected the scripture that they are trying to obey. And their righteousness that they're trying to establish on their own by the multitude of washings, their fake righteousness, and their fake worship, it will never stand against the scrutiny of God's holiness, of God's perfection. It's impossible. Jesus then goes on in verses 14 through 23. He goes on to establish that the filthy heart is the problem. The filthy heart is the problem. And if our heart, our spiritual condition is the problem, then and a heart so filthy that out of every single person, out of every single person, there exists the possibility for every kind of sin. That's how filthy our hearts are. Outside of Christ, because of the imputed guilt that we all have in Adam, There is no external ritual, there is no standard, there is no diet that can cleanse the soul. It is a spiritual issue, not a physical problem. And so what we have here in this precious account of Jesus and the Syrophoenician woman whose daughter is oppressed by an unclean spirit, and that word unclean is important think about what has been being discussed up to this point the washing of hands to cleanse defilement the defilement of the human heart and now we're confronted with this woman whose daughter has an unclean spirit which is a demon demons and unclean spirits are the same thing As Jesus has exposed fake worship, as He's exposed the filthy heart, the account before us records that genuine faith and genuine worship look like hearing about Christ and falling at His feet. This Gentile woman, this Syrophoenician woman, this woman that Matthew tells us is of Canaanite descent, A woman descended from those that God had his people when they came into the promised land. He had his people destroy the Canaanites because of the sinfulness and utter horror and heinous nature of their lives. Yet this woman is a Canaanite woman in a pagan region, the region of Syrophoenicia to the north and west of Israel, and a Gentile. True worship and genuine faith, we were seeing in this passage that, that true worship and genuine faith do not depend on any pedigree or religious background. True worship and genuine faith come when a person sees Jesus Christ for who he is and falls at his feet and worships Christ. It doesn't matter what your past is like. It doesn't matter what sins you have been guilty of. It doesn't matter how good your past might seem. It doesn't matter how much self-righteousness you have accrued. Either end of the spectrum, because of the filthy heart that all of us have, the only right believing response is to hear of Christ, to respond to Christ, and to fall at his feet. The theme of this passage, what we find in this account of, of this woman who falls at Christ's feet, an account, I think, I, I looked up Spurgeon's uh, sermons on this online, and I think there are about two dozen times that Spurgeon preached on this account. It's so precious. And it's an account of genuine faith exhibited. The Pharisees don't have genuine faith. They have fake worship. Our hearts are filthy. What do we do? We have to fall at Christ's feet. And in this Gentile, Syrophoenician, Canaanite woman, we have an account of genuine faith exhibited in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. John MacArthur says about this account this woman's story is a magnificent illustration of the fact that genuine saving faith forsakes idols, abandons pride, and reverently yet persistently begs for divine mercy and grace. Genuine faith reverently and persistently begs for divine mercy and grace. We have nothing else. Nothing else except the mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. So, as we come into this passage, do you believe in Christ according to the terms laid out in Scripture? Do you see the filth of your own soul, a a filth so deep and so embedded that Christ alone must cleanse you? Do you worship Christ for who He is and submit to Him? And loving worship. Genuine faith exhibited. The sermon today consists of four one word points the situation, supplication, submission, and salvation. Situation, supplication, submission, and salvation. Let's notice first the situation. Verse 24. And from there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came to him and fell down at his feet. What do we note about this situation? Well, first of all, I'd like you to see the condescension of Jesus Christ. Anytime we come to the Gospels and we have a description of what Christ is doing and what Christ is saying, we're confronted with this reality, with the condescension of Jesus Christ. Here, Jesus is described as arising probably from somewhere in Capernaum on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee and working His way north and west to The the, a, a region outside of Israel. It's one of the only times that he actually goes outside of Israel. He came to save the lost, not just Jews. Although his primary focus in his ministry was to the Jews, his saving work extended beyond Israel, beyond Judaism. And so he went to the region of Tyre and Sidon and entered a house. And, you know, these are details that we, we look at and, and we are familiar with reading, and we just kind of, you know, read over them. Okay, he went from one place to another, and he entered a house. He went from outside to inside, but, but these are important. They're reminders of us that Jesus Christ is eternal God. They're reminders for us that Jesus Christ, when he came to earth, when he took upon himself flesh, He condescended from eternal glory. He set aside his glory and became man, clothed himself with humanity. We see Christ in this passage as a human, as a man who came to procure a perfect righteousness and to become the perfect sacrifice, the spotless Lamb of God who would redeem his people from sin. And here Jesus, not only do we see him in his flesh, but we see him going from Israel to a pagan territory. He's going among pagans and he's interacting with pagans. And like the story of the woman at the well in John chapter 4, Jesus did not shy away from interacting with those that society said, no, you don't, you don't talk to those people They're really bad. They're really sinful. No, Jesus went to the sinful. Jesus cared for those who were in the bondage of sin. Jesus here is also withdrawing from conflict with his enemies. As we've seen up to this point in Mark, the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, the Herodians, they want to kill the Lord Jesus Christ. And think about this. This is God in flesh. This is the Messiah. This is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And, and these men, these sinful men, these sinful hypocrites, these whitewashed tombs that Jesus will call them in Matthew 23, they're, they're confronting him and they're pushing back on him and they're saying that he has a demon. How easy it would have been for Christ to annihilate them. But he withdraws from the conflict, and yes, although one day he will defeat all of his enemies, yet now is the time for instructing his disciples and preparing them for what he will face on the cross and preparing them for the message that they will be called to preach after he rises and ascends to the Father and commissions them to proclaim the gospel These details about Christ, where He went, what He said, what He did, all of these details in the Gospels are vignettes, are a cross-section of the absolute perfect life of the Lord Jesus Christ. All that He did was in accordance with the will of the Father, he never stepped outside of the father's will and he did that so that he could offer himself as the sacrifice to ransom his people and to provide a perfect righteousness to give to impute to to credit to the redeemed when we come to christ going on a little bit of a tangent here but when we come to christ We come depending entirely on the payment that he made for our sin. We cannot add nothing. There are no good works that we can add to what Christ has done. There's nothing that we can do to remove God's wrath from us. We're incapable. We're impotent. Christ had to offer himself as the perfect, sinless sacrifice. And because he is deity, because he is the God-man, his sacrifice was sufficient for all those who turned to him for all time. But not only did Jesus take away our sin and pay the price of redemption, because Christ is righteous, because he is perfect in his holiness, when we turn to Christ for the forgiveness of sins, our sin debt is paid, and we are also given the complete righteousness of Jesus Christ. God sees you the moment that you come to Christ, the moment that you're converted, the moment that you're regenerated, you are complete in Christ. Nothing lacking. All righteousness is fulfilled. There's not a, a drop that you can add to what Christ has already done. And this is the importance of understanding what the scriptures teach about our righteousness and redemption that protects us from the false teaching that might say, well, Christ puts you in a good place to start doing good things, but then you have to start doing things, and if you haven't done enough good things, when you die, you're also going to have to suffer in a fake place called purgatory because what Christ did was not sufficient. That doctrine and every other doctrine, every other religion that promotes any kind of works righteousness is a heinous departure from what God has done and a blasphemous, a blasphemous description of what Christ is. Paul raises the question in Galatians, and he says, is Christ the minister of sin? And what he's saying is, look, if, if you think that you put your trust in christ and then need to add more then christ still is a minister of a sinful standing christ has not changed your standing if you still think you have to do good works to gain favor with god no there's no condemnation for those who are in christ jesus the condescension of christ to be our sacrifice To provide for our perfect righteousness is the one and only basis for our acceptance before God, and it is complete and it is done. Well, we see Christ, we see his condescension. We see that Christ accomplished objectively what we could not. But we also see in this situation the chaos of the woman's life. The chaos of the woman's life verse 25 as christ is retreating his reputation has preceded him and immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet can you imagine having a demon-possessed child in your home that would be chaotic to say the least in this passage again though demon is described as an unclean spirit the filth that Jesus describes look at verse 20 in the passage before as Jesus finishes describing our condition he says what comes out of a person is what defiles him For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, and foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. That filth described by Christ, is intensified in the house of this woman. Her daughter is oppressed by an unclean spirit, by a demon. And we need to note that the filth that Jesus describes in the previous passage, that filth, that kind of heart, the filth of the human heart, makes a very welcome and comfortable place for demons. The demon is very much at home in the heart of this daughter because her heart is filthy, just like the heart of all the unconverted. In fact, we're told, we're told that those outside of Christ are blinded by the God of this world. We're told that to believe anything else other than the gospel of Jesus Christ is to believe the doctrine of demons in First Timothy chapter 4. The unclean spirit inhabiting this daughter is a tangible expression of the reality of darkness for all those who are outside of Christ. We're told even that when the gospel is preached, when the Word of God is preached, Jesus said in in Mark chapter 4, verse 15, that when the, the seed of the gospel falls on hardened soil, on those who reject the Word of God, it's not just a neutral rejection of the Word of God. The devil comes and snatches away that seed. There are supernatural forces at work even in the hearts and lives of the unredeemed. It is a hopeless condition. We have filthy hearts that have turned against God and rebelled against God, and yet we're also blinded and hardened by the God of this world who is intent to take away the seed of the Word of God lest we should turn and repent. This account is intensifying. It's intensifying the reality of what the filthy heart is like. The filthy heart is a welcome place for unclean demons, for unclean spirits. And just briefly, think about the devastation. In Revelation, we have account after account of what evil demon-inspired people and evil angels do as God brings judgment on the earth. And we're told... We're told what the end will be of all demons, of the devil and his angels. In Matthew 25, verse 41, we're told that those who are outside of Christ at the judgment, those who have never, ever repented and believed in Christ for the forgiveness of their sins, they will spend eternity with the devil and his angels in a place called hell that God has prepared for the devil and his angels. That's the state of the unclean heart. The state of the unclean heart is that to die outside of Christ means that those who die with an unclean, unredeemed, filthy heart will spend eternity in fellowship with the devil and his angels with unclean spirits. It's sobering. It's terrifying. It's terrifying What our hearts are apart from Jesus Christ. This daughter of the woman is in the passage, she's called a little daughter. That that term does not necessarily indicate her age, it's a term of endearment. And it could just as well be even a grown woman who is still part of her house. Her house is in chaos. Her house is a place that demons are comfortable. Her house is a place where filthy hearts reign. And the sobering reality is that the account we have here, to a degree, reflects the state of every home where the unsaved remain blinded by the God of this world. To be unsaved is to be blinded by the God of this world. To be unsaved, to be hardened, is to, be, is to have a heart where the devil feels welcome to come and take away the seed of the Word of God. To have those outside of Christ dwelling under our roof is a place of chaos. And there are many of you here today who feel that on a daily basis, you feel what it is. You know what it is to live with an unsaved spouse. You know what it is to have unsaved children under your roof. You know what it is to carry the burden of of those who do not love Christ, and yet you love with the natural affection of human relationships. And I'm, I'm going into the details here and, and, and helping us understand what's taking place so that we can look at this not as an exception, not that what the woman is dealing with is exceptional, but that this, this is what it's like where the unredeemed live, where filth reigns, where the God of this world has free reign. And I say that for your encouragement, because here is a woman who's a Gentile, a Canaanite, a Syrophoenician. She has nothing except Christ, and she prays. She prays to her Savior for her family. She brings her request to the Lord of glory. Well, we've seen the situation. Let's move then to the supplication. And supplication is just an uh, uh, S-word way of saying request. She's bringing her supplication to the Lord. Let's notice what happens in this woman's life. In verse 25, again, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came... And fell down at his feet. And those three verbs, she heard, she came, and she fell down. We have instruction. We have a a reflection of what's taking place at her heart. We, We have genuine faith exhibited as she responds to Christ. We see, first of all, that her supplication is a response to hearing about Christ. She heard of Christ. We don't know how she heard, we don't know from whom she heard, but she heard of Christ. And Matthew tells us she came running to Him because He alone was her hope. We're also told in Matthew a little bit of her understanding of Christ. She calls Him Lord, and she calls Him the Son of David. She's aware of the titles that He has. He is the Lord. He is the fulfillment of God's steadfast love to his servant David, and he is abundant in mercy. Lord, son of David, have mercy on me, is what her cry is. She has heard about Christ, and although her understanding is probably not full, she takes what she knows she takes what she knows of christ that he is merciful and compassionate she takes what she's heard of christ that he has delivered those with demons he's delivered those with leprosy he's delivered those who are sick he speaks with authority he preaches the gospel and she hears of that and she comes to him it's a response to hearing about christ our supplications our supplications and our intercessions for others, for those that we love. They are coming to Christ based on what we know of Him, based on what is revealed in His Word. We hear of Christ. We know Christ. We learn of Christ. We hear of His compassion and His mercy, and we go to Christ and plead with Christ. There's also another point of application here. We're not told how she heard but she did someone spread the news there are so many people around us whose lives are in utter chaos because of unbelief and sin who don't know where to turn are they hearing about christ are they hearing about christ from you are we planting the seeds by proclaiming Jesus Christ? The Lord might bring your path across a desperate person, a desperate person like you once were. Are you ready to declare the hope that is found in Christ alone? Her supplication is a response to hearing about Christ. It's also rooted in the worship of Christ. She came to him and fell down at his feet. Now, this woman very likely had been an idolater, very likely had practiced even pagan rituals to get the demon out of her daughter, but like the Thessalonians in 1 Thessalonians chapter 1 and verses 9 and 10, she turned away from idols to serve the living God. She worshiped God alone. In the time that my family was in Africa for a couple years when I was growing up, we would have, I don't know that I ever had a personal one. I was, only, I was about 10 years old when we went over. But I would hear other missionaries talking about various encounters with witch doctors. Why would people go to witch doctors? Well, People would go to witch doctors to try to find some cure for either physical ailments or what they determined as spiritual ailments that were rooted in superstition. They they would try to find something to deliver them. Very likely in a a pagan area, in the Syrophoenician woman that was saturated with paganism and all kinds of deviant worship, this woman had that kind of orientation before she heard about Christ. But she turned away from idols to serve the living God. She rejects idols and she offers nothing. She came and she fell at His feet. When we see who Christ is, when we hear who Christ is, when we hear that he is the one who is the son of David, he is the promised one of Christ, that he is abundant in mercy, that he is the Lord of glory. And when we rightly assess ourselves in the in the face of who Jesus Christ is, we can be nothing but spiritually undone and fall down before him. Her appeal is not based on anything she's done. It's based entirely on who Christ is. And this description of her coming to Christ is a critical point in the entire section. The way that this woman comes to Christ is a contrast to the Pharisees who are exercising surveillance on Christ and saying, Ah, you missed it there, you didn't wash your hands, you you rubbed hand your your disciples were rubbing grain. You you have a demon. They were looking down on Christ and assessing Christ and trying to impose their own religion on Christ. They were trying to impose their own terms on their salvation, their own terms on God, not this woman. She comes and falls before Him. She is conscious of her desperate condition. Her supplication is a response to Christ. It's rooted in worship to Christ. As we go on in the passage in verse 26, we're told, Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Jesus did not answer her right away. In fact, in Matthew's account, we're told that Jesus did not answer her. The text says that. And she kept crying out to him to the point that his disciples were getting annoyed and said, send her away. There's multiple interactions in Matthew's account where she cries out to him. She's ignored by Christ. The disciples are annoyed by her. But what Mark reflects in his language in verse 26, Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. She begged him. And the the word that Mark uses is a word and a a tense that, that describes an ongoing, continuous begging, a repeated begging. Her supplication to the Lord Jesus... It was a response to the person of Christ. It was rooted in worship of Christ, and it was repeated in the face of delay from the Lord Jesus Christ. She kept on begging him, Lord, Lord, deliver my daughter. Cast the demon out of my daughter. Christ's delay here is simply a means to showcase her faith. A faith that runs to Christ, and a faith that remains with Christ, even when there is delay. There's nowhere else for her to turn. James 1.6, let him ask in faith with no doubting. She repeats her petition, she repeats her supplication, and her repeated request doesn't rest in any manipulation pr- tactics that she uses. It rests entirely in God's goodness. Again, in Matthew's gospel, right before Jesus engages her with this parable, her final, re- re- her final plea is simply this, Lord, help me. Lord, help me her repeated requests rest in God's goodness we've seen the situation we've seen the woman's supplication let's now look at submission we're looking at genuine faith exhibited jesus responds to her finally in a way that doesn't seem to be very encouraging Let the children be fed first, for it's not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. How many of you were called a dog this week? Hopefully none. We live in a pretty, you know, a society that would look down on that, for better or for worse, whatever. But if you were, how would you respond? What? How dare you call me a dog? This is not an encouraging reply. Lord, I'm praying, I'm begging, I'm worshiping, and and you're telling me that that you're not here for me? Let the children be fed first and not the dogs. But what we find in, in, in Christ's response to her is Christ here is testing her faith and requiring submission to him. So we see that the submission required. Jesus clarifies that the priority of his mission here focuses on Israel. The woman is an outsider. She's a Canaanite. She's a Shirephoenician. She's a Gentile. At the same time as Jesus delivers this brief parable to her, it's notable that the word that he uses for dog is not the common word that Jews would typically use for Gentiles, which would describe a... A mongrel and a and a, a just a, a wandering dog that that would eat whatever and it was an extremely derogatory term. No, the term that Jesus uses is actually a diminutive term that reflects a household pet. In other words, what we're finding in Jesus' response to her is that although he's communicating the priority of his mission is to the jews and not to the gentiles he's actually still making room for her by noting that the dogs are part of the household he's not talking about the strays the wanderers he's talking about a household pet and although the woman doesn't have a claim on him His parable as both a test of her faith and as a demonstration of his compassion and mercy to her there there is an invitation inherent in it in the language that he uses and so we see submission required as the lord puts forth this little parable and then the woman's response incredible She answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. The woman, first of all, agrees with the Lord. She doesn't say, Lord, how dare you call me a dog? Don't you know that I'm a person? No, she says, yes, Lord, I I see what you're saying. I agree with you. You are the Lord. You're the son of David. You're the king. Whatever you say is good. Yes, Lord. And this woman, this Gentile, Syrophoenician, Canaanite, outsider woman is actually then the first that actually interacts with a parable of Christ. what have we seen about the parables up to this point? I mean, the disciples are like, what do you mean, Lord? We don't get it. Tell us what you mean. The the Pharisees and the the scribes, they get upset eventually at at what he says. This woman listens to what the Lord says. She submits herself to the Lord, and she interacts with what he says. When you worship Christ... When you worship Christ as a point of application, just to her general response here, when you worship Christ as Lord, everything Christ says is perfect and acceptable, even if it's not liked or understood. Everything that Christ says is perfect and acceptable to the one who worships Christ, even if it's not liked and understood. Why? Because your posture is to hear your Lord. Your posture is to trust your Lord. And any problem that we have with what Jesus says, it's not a problem with Him, it's a problem with us. And here this... Dear woman, this desperate woman demonstrates a believing, worshipful response as she engages the Lord. Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs, even the dogs under the table, even those household pets eat the children's crumbs. She picks up on the fact that the dogs are part of the house and she expresses her, her, her trust in the abundant generosity of Christ. Now, the significance of what she's saying here is, Look, Lord, I, I agree. I, I don't dictate your mission. You're the Lord. You dictate your mission. I agree that the children of Israel are the ones that, re- that receive the abundance of your work. I agree that, but Lord, with that, but Lord, you are so abundant. You are so great that a few crumbs from the abundance of your mercy to your people does not diminish their abundance at the table. You are abundant in mercy. Lord, have mercy on me. You are great in your generosity. You are great in your mercy. You are great in your compassion. And Lord, healing my daughter, it won't diminish the abundance that you have for your children. And Lord, even because you are who you are, you are the Lord of glory. You are Christ. You are the son of David. Lord, I'll be satisfied with a crumb of your mercy. If that's what you're offering, that's what I'll take. I would much rather have a crumb of your mercy than a banquet with anything else this world has to offer. She submitted to the Lord. Supplication, submission, Christ required submission to showcase her faith, and in faith, she rendered submission to the Lord. What did the Lord think of that? Verse 29 And he said to her, For this reason, or for this statement, you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. This woman's genuine faith. salvation in Christ alone, we see her confession confirmed by Christ. For this statement, what is Jesus saying? Jesus is recognizing that, that her statement reflected her faith in Him. Again, in Matthew's account, Jesus says, Great is your faith. Great is your faith. Christ delights in statements that reflect faith in Him as the object. The greatness of the woman's faith was not some kind of quantitative faith that she uh, that, that she was able to generate in her own soul. The greatness of her faith was the object that her faith was placed in Jesus Christ himself. Woman, great is your faith. Here's a woman who runs to me, who stays with me, even as she has to repeat her supplication and ultimately receives from the hand of Christ. Christ delights in statements that reflect faith in him. He understood the woman's response to be a genuine reflection of her faith. And he goes on to accomplish a great deliverance. She went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. In this woman's salvation, we find the confession. Her confession is confirmed by Christ and a deliverance accomplished by Christ. John five fourteen and first John five fourteen and fifteen won't have turn have you turn there this morning but it details for us that one of the marks of those who have life from Christ is that God hears and answers their prayer. And in Colossians chapter two and verse fifteen, we're told that Christ ultimately exercised all authority over the demonic powers. And what we see as Christ is on earth, as Christ is ministering here on earth, is that Christ delivered this young girl, this, this daughter of this woman, immediately, completely, and while geographically separated from her. It's a demonstration that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. Jesus Christ is the one who came to save sinners. Jesus Christ is the one who has authority over all beings, even the unclean spirits. And it's Jesus Christ and Christ alone who can deliver from what is unclean and from what is evil and from what is damned by God. Salvation is in Christ and Christ alone, and salvation is complete and immediate when He delivers His people. Jesus is the Son of God. Do we pray? Do we pray out of faith in Christ? Not faith because of what we can do, not faith because of how eloquent our prayers might be, but because of the goodness of Christ? Christ? Do we pray in faith, believing that Christ and Christ alone is the Deliverer? Does Jesus turn and tell us, great is your faith? And, you know, that statement, great is your faith, it's it's not really even a commendation of us because salvation is a grace gift. And even our faith is a gift of God. Great faith is a gift that God gives His people. And it's a stewardship that we have the opportunity to offer as we, as we go to the doors of heaven on behalf of those who are enslaved in sin for the glory of Christ. Those who are saved by Christ fall at His feet in humble worship. They leave behind the things of this world like the woman. They leave behind the worthless rituals of self-righteousness. They're satisfied by a crumb of mercy from Christ and would not trade a crumb of mercy for all that the world has to offer. Why? Because genuine followers of Christ know the wickedness of their own heart. They know the filth of their own heart. They know that only Christ could redeem them and save them from their sin. And they are not willing to exchange their soul for the world. They gladly turn away from the world to Christ for the sake of their soul. True followers of Christ are those who fall at the feet of Christ. They fall at the feet of Christ in humility to make their supplications to submit to his words and know the joy of salvation that Jesus Christ and he alone provides. You know, I'm I'm really sad to come to the end of this message. I, I know why Spurgeon preached it so many times. There's so much here so much of our lord so much of his mercy and so much of his compassion for lost sinners and it certainly is our joy this morning to remember what christ ultimately accomplished for us when he went to the cross when he shed his blood to pay for our sins to redeem us from the sin debt that we could never pay to defeat the powers of darkness, to defeat death itself, and to give us new life in Christ. In just a moment, I'm going to have the men come up and prepare to distribute the elements for our time of communion this morning. And just... As we, begin, as we turn our attention to this time of communion, let me remind us that as we take the bread, the bread reminds us of His body that was broken and the cup of His blood that was shed for the remission of sin. And the table, the communion participation is open to every repentant believer in Christ who trusts the shed blood of Christ, you're welcome to share these elements with us this morning. And for those in Christ, it is for those of us who believe in Christ and have examined ourselves and are have turned to Christ in repentance for sin and we rejoice on the basis of our cleansing in Christ's blood. If you're not in Christ, if you haven't repented and turned to Him for, for the forgiveness of sins, please let the elements pass you by. So as the men come, please bow with me in prayer and preparation for this time. Father, we thank You for Christ, our Savior. We thank You for His mercy and His compassion. It is our joy to honor you with gladness in this time. We adore you, our Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for your kindness and for your generosity, for your saving work on the cross. Help us, Lord, to participate here in a manner worthy as a reflection of what you have done as we remember that great work. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks for listening from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find more church information and other helpful materials at thetruthpulpit.com. Teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted, all rights reserved.